safe to say that aside from maybe certain parts of the book of Revelation, there is no, often, no more often skipped over passage when you're reading the New Testament than Matthew 1 verses 1 to 17 because it's the genealogy of Jesus. It's just a list of names. And so oftentimes our eyes glaze over and we just kind of skip ahead. But you know, trust me here, we're going to read this because I think, as Matthew would suggest, that there's significant payoff here in this list of names. So this is the word, this is the word of God. Let's listen as I read. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amon, Amon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheatiel, Sheatiel, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, Abiud, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Akim, Akim, the father of Eliud, Eliud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Mothan, Mothan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who was called Christ. Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you for your word. I thank you that none of it is wasted and all of it is for our use, for our strengthening, for our knowledge, so that we might know you better, know ourselves better, and rejoice in who you are better. And so, God, we come to this text this morning with that goal and with that desire, and we pray that you would fan that desire in us. May we see you more truly, more greatly, and may we rejoice and praise you as a result of it. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So I was, I was reading earlier this year a, a story about a man, a 50-year-old man from San Francisco whose name is Aaron Levi. Aaron Levi was adopted at birth in 1964. And like many people who were adopted, he, he grew up with questions in his mind. He looked in the mirror, he looked at the color of his skin, he looked at the build of his body, and he wondered who his parents, his birth parents, his biological parents might be. Now, as an adult, through adoption records, he was able to learn about his birth mother fairly easily. As a British woman who had lived in San Francisco for a few years where Levi was born, but his father remained a mystery. And so he's been on a search, this story was saying, he's been on a search to try to find closure. And he says he doesn't consider himself to be obsessed about it, he just describes himself as an adopted person who's been on a long journey of self-discovery. 
One of his relatives in his adopted family, an aunt of his who's a psychologist, said really the, same, the questions that he's asking are really the same questions that anyone asks, that everyone asks. She says he's asking the question, who do I belong to? Where am I in the world? Who am I? Is there anyone who claims me? Now, have you ever asked yourself some of those questions? I mean, maybe not in terms of physical lineage. Maybe, that, maybe you can go back generations in your family tree and, and trace it back centuries, or maybe you can't. Maybe you don't know. But regardless, those fundamental questions are still ones that nag us, aren't they? Right? Who am I? Who can claim me to be theirs? Now, why do we read this long list of names? Aside from it being a decent reminder for you reading teachers of why it's important to read phonetically, right? Why, why start here? In, 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 when you could have very easily just started at verse 18. Matthew sets it up for you if you wanted to start there because he says this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. Boy, what a perfect place to start a Christmas narrative. Why not start there? Why start with verse 1? Well, what I'd like to suggest, Matthew would like to suggest, is that the genealogy of Jesus tells us something essential about the identity of Jesus. This baby whose birth in Bethlehem he is then going to describe. And then further, I think we can take from that as we discover more about the identity of Jesus, we can understand a little bit more about who we are and our identity. So let's look at, the, let's look at this identity of Jesus. What does this tell us about Jesus? Why is this genealogy the starting point for Matthew's Christmas story? Well, this, this genealogy tells us at least three things about Jesus, at least in these categories. It tells us that he is the promised Messiah, that he is the gracious Messiah, and that he is the only Messiah. The promised Messiah, the gracious Messiah, and the only Messiah. Now first, the promised Messiah, because this is the most obvious point that Matthew wants us to see. Jesus is the one to whom all of the Old Testament prophecies point. He starts in verse 1, stating a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, and the son of Abraham. Right? And when he, says, when he says Jesus Christ, he's not using Christ as his last name here. He's a title. It's the royal title for Messiah. This is God's designation for his appointed king. Literally, it means the anointed one. Christ in the Greek, Messiah in the Hebrew. Same basic word, same, same meaning. That's the title that Matthew at the very outset is giving to Jesus. And while different people at the time would have had very different understandings maybe about what the Messiah was to do, what his mission would be, there would have been no misunderstanding about the claim that Matthew was making. He was claiming that this man, whose given name was Jesus, which was a common historical name of the time, Yeshua, that this historical man was, in fact, the promised anointed one. And when he says that this is his genealogy, he's saying that this, this coming of this man signals a change, a beginning, a new beginning. That's where the word genealogy comes from, Genesis. It's the same Greek word. Right? The word means beginning. And of course, I mean, when we use it to refer to historical lineage, that kind of makes sense. It's our record of origins. It's, it's where we come from. And so, and so that makes sense. Matthew's doing that here for Jesus, talking narrowly about this list of names. This is his genealogy. This is where he came from. This is his origin. And yet, by putting it at the very outset of his entire account of Jesus's life, what Matthew is also doing is he's signaling that in the coming of Jesus, there is a very new Thing happening. This is a new beginning. The second Adam has come. A new Genesis is here. And that's what he's saying when he says that Jesus is the son of Abraham, the son of, of David. 
God, God had promised, think of Abraham for a second, God had promised Abraham thousands of years before that he would take from Abraham and from Abraham's descendants and make him a great nation. Right? He told him, this is in, in Genesis chapter 22, he said, through your offspring, and he uses a singular noun there, singular offspring, through your offspring, all nations on the earth will be blessed. And so what Matthew is saying here, by saying that Jesus is the son of David, he's saying, I'd like to, you to introduce you to the guy. Right? He's the offspring about whom the promise was made. He's the son of Abraham. Now, God had also promised an offspring to David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, he tells David that he's going to establish for David an eternal house, an eternal kingdom. And he says, this is 2 Samuel 7, he says, I will raise up your offspring, similar word, to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so what Matthew is saying is here is, I'd like to introduce you to the guy. <laughs> Here's the offspring about whom the promise was made. He's the eternal king. He's the son of David. So that, that's the most obvious part of the, of the genealogy here. Jesus is the promised Messiah. And the rest of the names that come after it just simply provide the link for us from those promises that were made to Jesus. But the names tell us something else. Because Jesus is not just the promised Messiah. Jesus is the gracious Messiah. Now this is why it's actually good to read the names. Because actually reading the names tells you something very interesting about Jesus. All the commentators, every sermon I've ever heard preached on this text, they all point out, they all know that there are names in this genealogy that you would think have no business being in a list of, of, of history about the Messiah, the promised blessing of Abraham, the eternal king of David. Right, for example, the, the women. Note the women. There are five referenced women here in the genealogy. There's Tamar, there's Rahab, Ruth, the wife of Uriah, and then ultimately Mary. Now, while it's not, it's not completely unheard of in ancient genealogies to mention a woman here or there, at the very least, it's very unusual. Now, why? Well, because you, as you might expect in a patriarchal society, the women didn't really matter in terms of a genealogy. Genealogies, they were, they were, like, they were like your resume. They were what commended you to the world. It was, sort of, it was sort of a legal kind of document, and women had no legal standing in that culture their commendation or their recommendation would have meant very little in the culture, and so why include them in the genealogy? It didn't really matter where you were from from the women's perspective. Now then, compound that with the fact that several of these women, at least two, maybe three, are foreigners, not just women. Right? Rahab was from Canaan. Ruth was from Moab. Uriah's wife, Uriah was, was a Hittite. It's possible Uriah's wife was, was as well. Now, this too would have been very puzzling. In a culture where, where ethnic purity was, was prized and where, particularly in the case of someone great, one might be tempted to sort of cleanse all of this Gentile blood out of the history of the Jewish Messiah. Why does Matthew then go out of his way to highlight it by including foreign women who he wouldn't have needed to include because they were women anyway? They were the outcasts, the marginalized of society, the women the foreigners, and yet they're in the family tree. Now, but there aren't just outcasts in the genealogy. Right? There's some pretty serious sinners here. Now, there's lots of examples. Actually, you could go on for a long time. 
But let me just highlight two of the most obvious to make, make the point. Verse 3. Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now, you read about this incident in Genesis chapter 38. Right? Basically, Tamar is Judah's daughter-in-law, who was married to Judah's eldest son. Right? But his son dies before they have any children. And so, according to the custom of the time, Judah gives his next son to Tamar to, to marry. But he dies too, still no heir. Right? So Judah has another son, but he's still a child. So he tells Tamar to wait. But it's not actually all that clear that when the time comes, Judah would really intend to give this son to Tamar. So Tamar takes matters into her own hands to get, to get herself an heir. So she disguises herself as a prostitute, and she puts herself in the path of her father-in-law when he's on a business trip, presumably knowing something about her father-in-law that would make him available for an opportunity such as this. And he is. So long story short, that's where you get these twins that Matthew lists here, Perez and Zerah, basically. Prostitution and incest, that's where you get them. Then there's David in verse 6. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Now, the woman, of course, is Bathsheba. But the fact that her name isn't mentioned here is not a slight on Bathsheba. It's not a slam on on Bathsheba. I'm not going to include her name. Actually, in the way that that Matthew does it, the way that he says it this way, It's actually a slam on David. Because if he had just said whose mother was Bathsheba, well, then the informed would have known. Those who knew about the situation would have known. But the others, might, if they weren't informed about what had gone on with Bathsheba, they would have just said, oh, isn't that interesting? That's very egalitarian of Matthew. He's including not just David's father, but David's mother. That's very nice of him. But by saying that that, that she was the wife of Uriah, He's forcing the people who are reading to confront the fact that the mother of King Solomon was actually the wife of another man. We looked at this last fall when we studied the life of of King David, and you can look at it in more detail in 2 Samuel chapter 11. But this is about as low as you can go. Uriah was one of David's best friends, one of David's mighty men, And, and, and one of the guys who had stood by David when no one else was. When King Saul was after him and David was on the run, Uriah was there. He was one of David's mighty men. He had defended him. He had fought for him. And now that David is king, he looks at Uriah's wife, who happens to be very pretty, and so he has Uriah's killed and takes Uriah's wife to be his own. So long story short, that's where we get Solomon. Adultery, conspiracy, and murder. And like I said, there's lots of, there's lots of examples here that you could cite. But just stay, just stay and assume for a second only with what we've said. Judah and Tamar, David and Bathsheba, there's some pretty messed up sinners. And they're in the family tree. And these are just the known people. These are just the ones we know about, the ones that we've heard of. There's lots of people in here that are not just you, but no one really knows very much about. Right? They're the unknown, the ones forgotten by history. And they're in the family tree. Now, why would Matthew do this? Why would he include the outcasts, the sinners, and the anonymous? Because Jesus is not just the promised Messiah. He's the gracious Messiah. As Matthew introduces his narrative here of Jesus' life in in these first 17 verses, we don't get a lot of indication. We get some information about who he is, but we don't get a lot of information about what his mission will be, about why he came, about what he intends to do. By including these names in this way, we get a very clear hint about what he's going to do. Because we don't learn the details how, but we do learn this, and this is really big. We learn that Jesus is going to identify himself 
with the outcasts, with the sinners, and with the forgotten. Ultimately, that is what the gospel is centrally about. The perfect Messiah, the eternal king, willingly choosing to identify himself with broken humanity so that he can assume the judgment, assume the rejection, assume the outcast status that would otherwise be rightly born by the outcast, by the sinner, by the forgotten. He's cast out so that we can be included. He bears our sin on the cross so that we can be made pure, not because we deserve it, but because he is the gracious Messiah. So the promised Messiah is also the gracious Messiah. But critically, Matthew also tells us, this genealogy also tells us, that Jesus is the only Messiah. Now, it's not always very popular to to say this, but the Bible does clearly make a claim that Jesus is the only Messiah, an, an exclusive claim. And the word has a negative connotation to it. Exclusive has a negative kind of connotation to it because a lot of times when we, when we say exclusive, what people hear is elitist. Now, elitism, of course, is just, is just simply thinking that you're inherently better than other people, that you're more worthy of God's love as a result. But, as we just talked about just a second ago, this is the gracious Messiah. And, and the genealogy of Jesus, like we just talked about, doesn't leave any room for pride for elitism. You just can't get it from there. But it is pretty clearly exclusive. In other words, there is no other Messiah. Jesus is the guy. There's no one else. That's that's what Matthew is doing by listing out all these names. He's making that claim. He's making that assertion. This is the son of Abraham. This is the son of David. I mean, you can see it in some sense in the way that he ties it all together in in verse 17. He says, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. Now, there's different ways that this has been understood, but but one of the clear things, regardless of the interpretation that you would take, one of the clear things that Matthew is doing here is he's attempting to summarize these lists of names in such a way so that when you get to the end of it, you realize that you have come to some sort of fulfillment, some sort of completion, that it ends here at Jesus. Here is the man. Actually, it can, it can potentially become even clearer when you look not just at Matthew's genealogy, but the one that's found in Luke as well. Now, I don't want to become overly technical, but I think we have to look at this because it's Christmas, and, you'll, and, and you could very likely, whether it's at something here or something somewhere else, be looking at the Christmas story in the, in the Gospel of Luke as well. And Luke has a genealogy too in chapter 3. Right? And it isn't hard to see, if you actually start reading through the names, that that from David to Joseph, from King David to Joseph, the list in Luke is completely different than the list that's here in Matthew. Matthew's genealogy follows the line through Solomon, right, who was the son of David that God specifically chose to be the next king of Israel. Right? And so you, this is when Solomon's son, Rehoboam, becomes the king, and the royal line sort of proceeds from, from there. That's how Matthew does it. That's what we just read. But in Luke... The line from David begins with David's oldest son, Nathan. In other words, here you have a son who is not going to be the king, but who, under other circumstances, would have a legal claim to the throne. And, theoretically, if the line of Solomon were ever to be, never to not be filled, to be be terminated for some reason, someone who would be able to step in and have a legal claim to the the throne. The problem, then, is how do you... Both of these genealogies seem to lead us to Joseph. How do you reconcile that? 
How do you explain that? And it's been, it's historically, it's been a question for scholars that's very heavily debated and discussed, and there's lots of different ways to, to look at it. But one of the best, and what I'd, one of the, the one, I'd, one I'd suggest we think about and spend time thinking about now, is one that's consistent with much of the early church tradition, and I think best articulated by Donald Gray Barnhouse, who was the pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia during the, the middle of the 1900s. And the explanation basically goes like this. He says, Matthew gives us the line, just like we were just saying, of actual royal succession, starting with Solomon, those who actually sat on the throne and then leading us to Joseph. But Luke, on the other hand, beginning with Nathan, who would have a legal right to sit on the throne, David's oldest son, leads us not to Joseph, but to Mary. And there's, and there's technical reasons why you can understand the way that it's phrased in Luke as perhaps referring not, just, not, not to Joseph, but actually possibly referring to, to Mary. Now, but if, now, if this is true, then what you have is you have two genealogies, two lines of these brothers, cousins, if you will, that over the centuries go in, go in different directions. And then both of them having a distinct claim to the throne coming together in Joseph and Mary and in this one person, Jesus. Now, this is why this, is why this all matters. Look at verse 12, verse 11 and 12. Verse 11, you see, Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and then Jeconiah was the father of Sheatiel. Now, Jeconiah, in Jeremiah chapter 22, was cursed by God. The line through, through Solomon, but cursed by God. And God said that, there, that no descendant of Jeconiah would ever sit on the throne of David. Now, you, you could take that as just referring to the fact that the political nation of Israel was now over and that no, no king would ever sit on the political throne of Israel again. But the language there in, in, in Jeremiah 22 would, would lead you to believe that maybe there's something bigger that he's talking about, that this really is a curse on the line of, on the line of Solomon, which means that none of the kings after Jeconiah could have ever been king, even though this was the royal line. This is, this is how the explanation goes. So you have a descendant through the line of Solomon that would be the royal line who could, have be, who could never have become king because of the curse on Jeconiah. And, but you resolve that because you have a line that has no curse on it, Luke's line descending from Nathan through Mary, that produces Mary and then ultimately the person, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who is therefore eligible to be king from the line of Nathan and exhausts that line. The line that has a curse on it, the line through Matthew and through, in Matthew through Solomon, produces Joseph and exhausts that line. This is how Barnhouse explains it. He says, When God the Holy Spirit begat the Lord Jesus in the womb of the Virgin, without any use of a human father, the child that was born was the seed of David according to the flesh. And when Joseph married Mary and took the unborn child under his protecting care, giving him the title that had come down to him through his ancestor Solomon, then the Lord Jesus became the legal Messiah, the royal Messiah, the uncursed Messiah, the true Messiah, the only possible Messiah. The lines are exhausted. Any man that ever comes into this world professing to fulfill the conditions would be a liar. Now, like I said, I don't want to be overly technical, and I do want to make you aware that there are other ways of interpreting this. But do you see what this might mean? This is the identity of Jesus. It means that Jesus of Nazareth, the child born of Mary, has a rightful, legal, physical claim to the throne. And then, being adopted by Joseph as Joseph's oldest son, becomes the end of the royal line as well. The lines intersect. And so you have not just the promised Messiah and the gracious Messiah, you have the only possible Messiah. 
Now, what does this mean for us? What does all of this mean for us? Right? The first thing it means is that Christmas is true. That's, we can't miss this. That's, that's what Matthew is trying to say to us. The Christmas story that Matthew is relating to us is not a work of fanciful fiction. He's trying very hard to emphasize that this is the reporting of history, actual events. And if that's the case, then it totally changes the way that you view Christmas because it's not a story anymore. It's news. It's tidings, to use Christmas-y kind of language. It's tidings to tell. And news is something you share. It's something that makes a difference in how you, you live your lives. Think about this. If this is true, this genealogy, what Matthew's relating here, if after thousands of years, God doesn't lose track of his promises, that he doesn't forget, that over the centuries, in the midst of of terrible sin, in the midst of political unrest and uncertainty, in the midst of the temptation that the people would have had over and over again to view God as distant and silent, if all that is true, that he never loses track of his plans, if all of that is true then you can trust him. You can trust him because it means that he's no less in control of history today than he was then. That he's no less aware of the promises that he has made to us today than he was then. That he cares just as much about the outcasts, the sinners, and the forgotten today as he did did then. Which leads us directly to the other thing that all of this means. If Jesus is the promised Messiah, if he's the gracious Messiah, if he's the only Messiah, and if Christmas is true, then what that means is that Christmas is for you. You remember Aaron Levi, the guy I was talking about at the beginning? Aaron Levi believes that he has discovered who his biological father was. After he, after he met with his mother, pieced facts together from some of the adoption records, um, he, he, thinks he, he thinks he knows. It was on the cover of Sports Illustrated in March of this year, the story. And this is what captured me about the story in the, in the, in the first place, because this is, this is the language, this is what was written on the cover of Sports Illustrated. It says, Aaron Levi wanted to know who he was, where he came from, where he belonged. From an early age, he had questions about his identity. When he finally pieced it all together, he was told that his biological father was the most transformative player in pro basketball history and one of the most transcendent athletes of the 20th century. He's talking about Wilt Chamberlain. But did you hear what it said? He discovered that his father was transformative and transcendent. Here's a man with a lifelong search for answers about who he was an innate knowledge that he must belong to something, to someone. And finally, the realization that his father is transcendent. That is true for you. In the Christmas story and the genealogy of Jesus, the lifelong search for all of our answers is over. Aaron Levi is related to basketball royalty. Slightly cool, but otherwise really not that big a deal, right? But what if you discovered that if you were related not to basketball royalty, but to cosmic royalty? What if you were related to the promised Messiah and to the eternal king? Paul tells us in his letter to the Romans, specifically in chapters 9, 10, and 11, that everyone regardless of whether we're physical descendants of Abraham or not, everyone who puts their faith, puts their trust in the promises that God has made for this Jesus 
everyone becomes a part of God's family, of Abraham's family, on the basis of that promise. Paul writes, specifically in Romans 9, 9, that the word of faith that we are proclaiming, this, this statement about what you have to believe, is just simply this. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. So in other words, by faith in Jesus the Messiah, you are a child of Abraham. And this family tree is yours. His identity is yours. Then Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 1 that this adoption, this engrafting into the family of Abraham, it doesn't just make you a distant cousin. It doesn't just kind of put you somewhere in the big mix of things. It makes you an heir to the king. Paul writes in Ephesians 1 that, that, that Jesus is the one with all rule and authority, not just in this age, but in the age to come. In other words, he is the king, the ruler. And then Paul very clearly says that we are the heirs of the eternal riches that are the possession of Jesus when we are connected to him by faith. So in other words, this faith in Jesus the Messiah, this adoption into his family, by that we are an heir of the eternal king who sits on the throne of David. His family tree is yours. His identity is yours. This is your Christmas identity. Now, maybe, like Aaron Levi, you are actually adopted. And you've searched, you've wondered, you've asked some of the same questions that he's asked. To whom do I belong? Regardless of of whether you pursue or decide to pursue or are able to pursue a relationship with your biological parents, your birth parents, and it may be wise, it may not be wise, it may be possible, it may not be possible, but regardless, ultimately, you know to whom you belong. You belong to Jesus. Or maybe, on the other hand, you've got a killer resume. I mean, you've researched your genealogy, and it goes all the way back to General George Washington. You can tell the history of Delaware through your family tree. You can point to the gravestones. Now, as interesting as that might be, and I sincerely mean that, I find history very interesting, as interesting as that might be, ultimately, that doesn't mean a thing. Because God will not ask you at the final day whether you're related to General George Washington but he will ask you how you're related to Jesus Christ. Or maybe you're an outcast. Maybe you feel anonymous, like the world ignores you. No one knows who you are. In the family of Jesus, all the names are recorded. They're all written down. And what the world finds obscure is known eternally by God. Or maybe, actually, it's that being known thing that scares you. Because like Judah and Tamar, like David and Bathsheba, there are things you don't want known. Things that sit heavy on your heart, on your, on your conscience. And you challenge God. You talk to him. And you, and you say, you assume, say, God, if you knew about me, if you really knew about me, you would want nothing to do with me. You wouldn't want me as a part of your family. Well, just like Judah and Tamar, just like David and Bathsheba, let me assure you, God does know. <laughs> he knows all about you. And he does not consider your past or what you have done to be a criteria for your connection to his family. This is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The beginning, the genesis. That's what Christmas is. It's a time of new beginnings. You are a son or daughter of the transcendent Lord of the universe because you are adopted into the family of Jesus. 
into the genealogy of the king. You are a part of his tree. Let's pray together. Father, there is absolutely nothing that would make us worthy of this, nothing that we can point to that gives us the ability to claim any kind of elitism. And yet, Lord, we are profoundly, amazingly thankful that you would include such as us into your family. God, let Christmas this year be a celebration of that, a celebration of who we are, known because of who you are. Help us to see ourselves as part of your eternal plan because it brings you glory and because it brings us joy. And we praise you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing.